Amen. First Corinthians chapter 10, we have been looking at for several weeks and the verse that I want us to look at right now once again and blow it up as a big picture object as we get ready to move forward will be verses 16 and verse uh, 17 in our text. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ and the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of the one bread. If you've been with us, you know that we are actually describing what is called the Eucharisto or the Eucharist or in our English language is called the Lord's what? The Lord's table. What I want you to extract from that as we begin to lay a visual is that there is a table that has always been promised by God as a spread of provision for his people. A table that God has always promised as a spread of provision for his people. That's the way I want you to look at it for a moment. I want you to visualize a table. It's a table to which we come for strength, for nourishment, for fellowship, for communion, for illumination, for direction, for confidence, for a building of our faith, for our edification, for preparation for service. That's what that table is. The table of the Lord is God's provision to us in the person of Jesus, who is the Lord's sacrifice to us for our edification. That's the big picture I want you to get. I want you to think in terms of the uh, lavish benevolence of a king who provides a feast for us and invites us to sit at that feast with him as his sons and daughters as part of the royal family and part of the Senate of that kingdom, uh, privileged to do something that many people are not privileged to do, and that is to eat and drink with God. To eat and drink with God. I hope you're keeping up with me. And if you've been tracking with me through the Old Testament, you understand that that paradigmatic optic is what Israel experienced in Exodus chapter 24 when Moses and Aaron and Joshua and the 70 elders were called up to the mount and they saw God metaphorically and they ate and drank before God and God did not hide himself from them. That was a grand picture of what happens with the believer when we're brought into relationship with Christ. So I want you to be thinking about my life is really one of a feast with the great king. Now, as you think about that, I want you to keep in mind, again, it is a purposeful feast. It's not a feast for merely self-consumption, though it is to be enjoyed. The table is a feast not merely for self-consumption, though it is to be enjoyed. You might think of Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. If you guys recall, unworthy, unqualified, condemned justly to die because Saul's household, the Benjamites, persecuted David's household, the Judites, and the Judites were actually really the ones who had right to the throne. The Benjamites did not. And so for them to persecute David was a very audacious act, would you not say? Saul's household should have been utterly destroyed, wiped out, genocidally, 
because of that attempt. But God was gracious to take out of Saul's house one whose name was Mephibosheth, who was lame in his feet. And he sits at the table with David and his sons as if he were a part of the family. That is a picture of the believer who in our Adamic nature war against the true and the living God and should be destroyed, but God finds a place for us at the table in Jesus because of a love between David and Jonathan. Not a direct love for us, but an indirect love. Because the father loves the son, you and I are sitting at the table with God, no longer his enemies, but his sons and daughters in Christ. Does that make some sense? All right, so I want you to understand the underlying privilege of being called to the table. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Now I want you to think about the table again in terms of the content, the provisio that's there. You are looking at a sacrifice. It is constituted by two elements, bread and blood. That sacrifice is the incarnation of the son of the living God the grounds upon which you and I live. As Jesus said, because I live, what? You shall live also. So visualize what it means to be a child of God. If Jesus is true, and he is, he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats of me, he will never die. The believer, therefore, is constantly feeding on Christ, on the table of fellowship, and this is how we live. That feeding, however, is not merely for our pleasure or soul consumption. It is in order to strengthen us to purpose, to strengthen us to purpose. And therefore, what we want to do, many of us will be gathering together this Sunday, will we not? Will we be partaking of the table? Of course we will. And at that same time, at that moment, we will be in because that's what the language says in 1 Corinthians 10. You will show, proclaim, declare, preach the Lord's death until he comes. So we get a chance to actually physically uh, experience this, which Paul calls communion with Christ, communion with the body of Christ. But as I stated on Tuesday, this is not kind of a private event. This is a public event. And what makes it public is that God is bearing record of his grace to the world. So whenever we partake of the Lord's table as a community, it's not only to remind us of who we are in Christ, but it's to remind the world that there's access to God by the sacrifice of Christ represented in that table. Did that make some sense? To remind the world that the offer of the gospel is set out for them too that they may come to whosoever will let him come and drink of the water of life and eat of the bread of life as well. So I want you to be thinking about this because we're getting ready to move into some application around that blessing. We learned that the table that we are privileged to partake of did require some what? Discernment. Is that right? That's exactly where Paul is going with that. I'm not going to stay there long, but it required discernment. Not anyone can come to the table and not anyone can come to the table any kind of way. And we also learned that there are more than one table. There's the table of the Lord. And then there's the table of what? Demons. That's what our text is teaching. I'm setting you up. It's going to take some time. It's on Friday. So look with me over 
at, um, at verse 20 and hear how Paul lays it out. This is under the area of, of discernment. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have what? Fellowship, Fellowship with what? Well, if that's going to be observed properly, it's going to require what? Discernment. Discernment, Discernment on our part to not only uh, avoid the calamity of engaging in something that is inappropriate, but even discerning it. So I gave you the metaphor on Tuesday of a table here. And that table is the sacrifice of demons. It is the doctrines of the world. It is the allurements of the world. It's an opportunity to engage in the secular, carnal worship of things of the world. They have a table too. That's what Paul is saying. Now I share it with you, the table of Christ is right near it. Did you guys get that? So you have the table of devils. It's not far away. <clears throat> it's as close to you and me <clears throat> as temptation. So it's not far away. <clears throat> and it's not meant to be far away. This is what we want to drill down into. The table of devils is right here. The table of Christ is right here. The, the believer has to know how to maintain a distinguishable discernment between the table of devils and the table of Christ. That discernment is going to require discretion. That's our next principle that we were dealing with. Now, what is discretion? It is the ability to know how. It's a know-how word. It's a know-how. How do I, I want you to get this, how do I live in the world but not be of the world? How do I engage in a landscape or a domain or a context wherein, now watch this now, there is provision offered by God for my spiritual welfare and being, but also provisions given to you by the enemy for your gratification and lust and fulfillment. Would you agree that that's a proper scenario? Of course it is. That was the first temptation that Jesus went through when he started ministry. The devil offered him a table when he was driven into the wilderness. Do you guys remember that? Bow down to me, turn these stones into bread, jump off this building. If you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. That is the enemy's table. Now, I want to I want to make sure you capture this concept before we move on into application. And that is this. The people of God never live in a vacuum. Uh, you have not been called to a life in Christ where you aren't constantly challenged with a table right next to you. A devil next door to you. An adversary behind you. Uh, a, a, a society into which you have to watch out for snares and traps and gins. You live in that kind of world. So what kind of discernment and discretion is going to be required for you to maintain focus on that which God is providing for you so that you don't get moved away from the hope of the gospel on that table? Is that a good word? Right, right. So this is what I want you to ca comprehend as we get ready to deal with the practical side of it, because we've already kind of been through this. Paul says that which they worship is unto devils, and I say that you and I should not have fellowship with them. And I, that we'll break down a little bit more, because the idea of fellowship means that you see the table of devils 
as equally accessible and appropriate as the table of the Lord. Because you see, when we're feeding at the table of the Lord, we're having fellowship with God, are we not? So, so if a man or a woman believes that the table of devils and the table of the Lord are mutually acceptable tables, he or she has no discernment, no discretion, no insight as to the inappropriateness of that feast over against this one. Does that make some sense? Right. So one really has to have an understanding of the privilege of being called to the Lord's table, but also the responsibility of recognizing the table of the enemy, because the Corinthians were open to that, were they not? They were open to every doctrine, every teaching. They were open to all kinds of teachers. That means they were open to all kinds of tables because a teacher is as a priest presenting before you a feast. And if you feed on it and it is of the devil, then you're eating at the wrong table. And so what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth is you guys got to understand you can't eat at any kind of table. So that's what the language is saying very clearly in our verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of what? Right. So that that's prohibition you cannot would indicate that we both have discernment and discretion and we have resolved I cannot. Does that make some sense? I cannot. I want you to stay with me now. This is Psalm 23 verse 5. This is another epic picture. Here's what David said. He knows something about a sheep because he is one, but he also knows something about a shepherd because he is one. And did he not say the Lord has prepared a table for me? And did he not say that it was in the midst of his enemies? So I'm contextualizing again this challenge because you must know that the table of the Lord that he provides for us, it should be, you know, your obligation to go as deep and as richly, uh, 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 as comprehensively uh, analogous into that table as you possibly can to understand the privilege of being at the Lord's table and, and what those resources are and why they're there. And I told you largely, not only are they there to feed us, nourish us, to strengthen us, edify us, but to prepare us for service. Is that not so? All right, so it's very good. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over, right? So he's really now describing the lavish efficacy of the feast on a spiritual level. So and if you think about what's going on on that table, I shouldn't stay here long, but if our table is like that, we should not be tempted to go to the table of devils. If our table is laid out by Christ, remember, you prepare the table, not me. We don't prepare this table, God does. It's a table prepared by God. That means all of the furnishings, all of the paraphernalia, all of the resources, all of the benefits are lavishly laid out by God. And then on top of preparing the table, he anoints us while we are eating. That's what the text says. You anoint my head with oil and my cup what? So a table for food, an anointing for the body, a cup running over is really the idea of overabundant joy for fellowship with God. 
It's an excessive joy. In fact, that's the way Paul puts it when he uses the language in 1 Timothy 6, 17. Pull that up. I want you to capture it. You can think about it in your own time. What I'm doing before I leave the table is tell you how the believer who really understands the richness of the table should be privileged to know that the table should never, ever be at any time something for which you go. This is insufficient. I need more. This is insufficient. I need more. Listen to what Paul says. Charge them that are what? Are we rich? Sure we are. With every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, we're rich, right? Ephesians chapter one. And the believer has everything necessary for life and godliness, does he not? And that same psalmist said in Psalm 23, verse one, the Lord is my shepherd or literally the Lord is the one that's shepherding me. I shall never be lacking anything. Now, that's a promise and it's a praise, is it not? It's a promise and a praise. So the man or the woman that's really walking with the Lord should know that the Lord is sufficient in the abundance of his blessings in our life so that we never need to go to the table of devils. Why then are we tempted to go? See what I'm getting at? So I'm going to go there because we actually have to work this through. But here's what Paul says. Charge them that are rich in this world. And he's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about believers. He's not telling you to go tell unbelievers. He's talking to believers who are exceptionally well off economically. Here's what he says. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not what? That's right. The Lord resists the what? That they be not high minded nor trust in what? Uncertain riches, Proverbs chapter 23, they take wings and fly away. Men and women that rest in their bank accounts, in their 401ks, in their stocks and bonds are delusional. And they have failed. And you are kind of inadvertently now going to the table of devils when you do that. You are kind of now, right, because if the table of Christ are eternal riches, they don't diminish in their value. The stock market does not impact the gospel. Right. So if, if, if I have a gospel and the gospel would be a kind of comfort, a kind of blessing, a kind of resource that we fall back on, a kind of hope. Right. My strength, my shelter, my strong tower, my hiding place. And we could use by analogy money in that same way. Right. Because money answers all things. You better hear me now. Solomon said it. Silver answers all things. But what kind of silver is that? We're talking about the silver that comes from God. The treasures of heaven, they adequately meet our needs in ways in which it doesn't matter which way the stock market goes. My wealth in Christ is never diminished. Some of us will get that. Now, this is important. So what what Paul said was, do not be high minded nor trust in uncertain riches. You have to use the things of this world, but you don't abuse them. But trust in the what? Living God who does what? Gives us richly. Stop right there. That participle gives us richly is equivalent to thou anointest my head with oil. You got it? Right. So think about it. When you bring a guest over in the Middle East and you invite them to dinner, you wash their feet. You anoint their feet and hands. You don't anoint their head. The anointing of the head is for special guests. That's why the woman with the alabaster box of ointment poured it on his head. 
God pours oil on the heads of special guests. Did that come home? Right. It's to enhance your person, enhance your being, enhance your presence. It's to let you know you are equally as valued to me as everyone else around the table. And of course, we know that because the Holy Spirit is represented by the oil, is he not? The third person. And so it's important for you and I to think that he giveth us richly just a few things. Is that what it says? All things. All things to do what? Enjoy. That's the word too. That's the word. To joy out. To joy out. He gives us richly all things, not to just joy in, but joy out. It is actually a, a sort of uh, expression, a, 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 an advertisement that says you have joy, but that joy expresses itself and it comes up and it comes out. Okay. Apolauso is the Greek term, and it means to not only enjoy in the secret sense, but it pours out as a testimony to others that you are in great fellowship with God. God takes care of you. That is, again, Psalm 23, verse 1. That makes sense, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I will never want for anything. That's joining out. All right. The context is set for us to work through then the next portion that I want us to deal with. Go back to our text and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And notice what it's going to say in verses 23, 22 through 27. And then you and I are going to take our outline and pick it up for the next 35 or 40 minutes. Listen to what Paul says after he tells you and I, you cannot eat at the table of devils and at the table of Christ. It's equivalent to saying, don't be double minded. A double minded man is unstable in all his ways. It's equivalent to saying you cannot have two masters. You're going to love one, hate the other. Okay, that's that's really what that's saying. It's saying don't halt between two positions. Either Christ is Lord or the enemy is Lord. Right. That's kind of what they're saying. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, what is Paul doing? He's reinforcing the argument to the church at Corinth. Don't slip into devil worship. Do we provoke the Lord to anger? So see, I want you to get that. The answer was not supposed to be yes. It's okay. It's not supposed to be yes. You got to think it through. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. Do we have the right to provoke him to anger by responding to his table in such a way as to say this table is not adequate. I need more. And so I'm going to go over to the table of devils. That would be to provoke him. What is the word up there? Jealousy. This is Paul, who is a Hebrew, taking you back to a Hebrew frame of reference. This is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. What that means is because he redeemed us, he purchased us, he bought us, we are owned by God and we are obligated to resolve all of our needs in him, not to be going to and fro to all kind of other gods. As Israel did, even in the wilderness now, we know that, don't we? So what Paul is saying to the New Testament church, don't be like the Old Testament church. And here's what he says in the latter part. Are we stronger than he? This is a a really wild thing. I want you to get this because it just came to me. Think about what he's saying. Are we stronger than the Lord? Are we stronger than the Lord? If I leave the Lord, 
the metaphor is the table at which I have fellowship with them. If I leave the Lord to go over to this table, I don't have strength outside of Christ to get out of this trap that I have willingly put myself into. Did that come home? Are we stronger than the Lord? If we're not stronger than the Lord, then we should not be walking presumptuously. That's what we're studying right now on Sundays, right? And you're going to learn it a whole lot more this Sunday as well with some fool that thought he could violate the Sabbath day because he thought he was stronger than the Lord. Okay, so we need to learn these things. To be stronger than the Lord is the attitude that I can do whatever I want to do, even though God has warned me, there are consequences for that action. You and I are not stronger than the Lord. We need him to be our strength. Right, so that's the way that Paul is kind of laying out that argument. Now watch what he does further so we can flesh this out. Verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. They're not necessary. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not what? Do not edify. That's where the term discretion comes in at. What is discretion? It's the ability to distinguish the benefit or non-benefit of a choice we make. It's the ability to distinguish the edification versus the harm that comes out of a choice we make. When we're being discreet, we're being careful. I am doubling back to the idea of presumption because it is a big issue that I want us to nail down. So the believer does not ever want to walk in presumption. That means he or she or they are going to be careful discretion, discernment, these are careful mechanisms, aren't they? If, if, I'm, if I'm sitting in a feast, and this is the way Paul lays it out, whatsoever is sold in the shambles thereof, if I'm sitting in a feast and I see poison over against something that is appropriately healthy, don't I need discernment? And shouldn't I exercise discretion? Both of those qualities are attributes of the believer. Discretion and discernment is what the believer is called to. This is why I'm talking about the know-how. How to, we need to know how to be in the world, but not of it. Particularly in the area of the metaphor of appetite. Because the table is about appetite. Y'all keeping up with me? Right, the table is about appetite. Am I able to exercise discernment around the things I eat? Metaphorically. Do I have discretion around the things I choose to imbibe or ingest metaphorically? Or am I like the pig or the dog can eat anything metaphorically? See what I'm getting? So like when a believer is truly born again, you're put in the category of clean animals. And a clean animal is not going to just eat anything. But an unclean one will. Like a dog will eat anything. Am I making some sense? Right. Um, so I'll leave that analogy there for you and I to work with. But now <laughs> he goes on to say in verse 24, because we could unpack that Paul uses that axiom all the time. I'm free to have all sorts of things, but I'm not free to have them without discernment and discretion. That makes sense, right? All right. We'll be able to talk that through in the Q&A as well. All things are lawful for me. That's a big expression, but all things are not expedient. That's a modifier to my freedom. All things are lawful to me. Freedom. All things do not edify discretion. See it? 
Very important to get. And I, I am going to magnify that under our third point when we get there. I want to magnify that. But what I stated in point number two on Tuesday was discretion is your liberty in order to walk in what? what who, learned, who learned what that is on, on Tuesday? To walk in what? Love. Love. For those of you who were not here, discretion is your liberty in order to walk in love. love. Ephesians chapter five, verse one and two. I want it to come home. I use discretion because I want to employ my liberty in a context in which I'm only expressing love through my liberty. I'm using discretion so that in my liberty, what should show up as I present is love. My discretion should never merely be for self-consumption. My choice making should never merely be about me exclusively without regard to anyone else. Am I making some sense? Right. So here's what we are told. Be ye therefore what of God? Are we? Yes, we are. And we're called to be what kind of children? Agapetos. Christ-like children. That's your turn. Agapetos. Lock it in. What kind of children is, are we supposed to be? Well, if we're followers of God, we're meant to be Christ-like children, right? Because Christ followed God and we follow Christ and, and God loves us for Christ's sake, does he not? The agapetos then is the fact that God has included you and I in the person of Christ so that he could pour his love on us in the same way he poured his love on his son. That makes sense? Now watch this. Therefore, in a reciprocal honor to God, because he loves me as he does in Christ, I want to respond by being a child that is dear to him. Does it come home? As dear children. That's the modifier for the imperative. The imperative is be ye followers of God. The modifier is as dear children. Does that make sense? Right. Now notice what it says in verse two. And therefore do what? Walk. walk. What is walk? Conduct. In what? Love. Right. So the verb here is walk. The modifier of the verb is what? Love. So what kind of walk am I engaging in? What kind of choice making? What kind of uh, practice am I engaging in? Because remember, walking is practice. Halakha in the Hebrew. Blessed is the man that walketh. That walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, right? So we are walking, walking, walking. It's a pattern of life. And walk in, walk in love as Christ has also loved us and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a what kind of savor? Sweet smelling. All right, captured and pin it. This is the idea of being well pleased. So what, if, if, if Paul is right, our conduct, when it's subsumed by our uh, communion with Christ and therefore presents itself as following God, is that kind of pleasing to God? Did that come home? Right. So own it because in a very tactile, in a very visceral, in a very dynamic way, what Paul is saying is our conduct, when it's rooted in the right motive and our optic is Christ. It is exceedingly pleasing to the Lord. It's really true. What a beautiful thing. And I can imagine what God is doing. He's seen Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
working out in us a testimony of his presence in our life and is exceedingly happy about that. That makes sense, right? All right, good. I want you to capture that. So this might, this might uh, be new for you, but it's helpful. Your relationship with God is never direct. It's always indirect. Your relationship with God is always via mediation. God the Father doesn't love you directly because you and I are not worthy of love directly. His love for us is indirect in his son. Does that make sense? Right. So your sense of an expression of and feeling and benefit from God smiling on you is because of who you are where in Christ. That's really important to get. Right. Now, what that will do for you is remind you that the grounds upon which you make God happy is not solely what you do, but who you are and whose you are. Does that help? Right, because sometimes God will smile on you when you are being stupid. Now, if that's true, it cannot be that God is smiling on you because of your stupidity. That'll come home in a minute. Right, see, God's not a sinner like you and I. You know, as parents, we might enjoy our kids' stupidity, but that just means they're stupid like us. That's where they got their stupidness from, us. Because God is righteous, he can only rejoice in us in Christ. And therefore, when the characteristics or qualities of Christ emerge out of our life and present themselves, obviously the Father is glad about it. And because you have the resident Lord with you, who is that called? Who is the resident Lord? The third person, the Holy Ghost. Because he's hanging out with you, he gets to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, hey, don't steal God's glory. You know this is me working in you. Right. It is God that works in us the will and the do of his good pleasure. So when we are walking as dear children, we are being graced to do it. It's the consequence of the table. I'm glad you're getting it because I want us to be able to walk up out of this. So walking in love under point number two and under point number two, sub point A, for those of you who aren't here, when in our discretion around our liberty, which is what we're going to be dealing with here a little bit more. In order, when we use discretion in our liberty in order to walk in love, we are therefore avoiding creating, what did we learn? A stumbling block. A stumbling block. I'm getting ready to deal with that. A stumbling block. Now that's going to be the lesson that we drill down in for 20, 20 more minutes. So I'm going to be practical with it and then we're going to drill down. What is a stumbling block? It's a means by which someone, as they observe you, stumble because of what they see. A stumbling block is a mechanism that's used to trip somebody up who can both fall and perish. A stumbling block is metaphorically uh, the analogy of a person being in a way or a pathway, and you cast a stone so they trip over the stone and fall and hurt themselves. Did that make some sense? Right. Very interesting with this. Very interesting. We're getting ready to learn this in 1 Corinthians and Romans chapter 14. When you and I are walking in love, we are avoiding creating stumbling blocks. Did that make some sense? Now, here's the reason why. 
When you walk in love, you walk in the light. And when you walk in the light, others then have light from your walk that keeps them from stumbling by your walk. This is 1 John chapter 2, okay? So Jesus said it like this in John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me, right, shall never walk in darkness. Notice what it says. I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of what? Right. And notice what I think is verse 13. Let me see it. John 13. uh, Okay, no, leave that there. It will be in another place. And because he's walking in the light, he knows where he is going and will not stumble. Will not stumble. Men and women that walk in darkness do what? Because they know not what they see or what they're doing. Right. And so now I want you to capture this. You and I, by our conduct, can either cut lights on for people or cut them off. That's that's what our, our language is getting ready to deal with on a practical level. So now this is what I meant by the witness of the table. The, the, the res- social responsibility of the table that we're partakers of. Does that table merit other people being better by your conduct at that table? That's the idea. So notice what uh, the text tells us in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24. Let no man do what? Seek his own. But every man, another man's what? Do you guys see that? All right, so that's a, that's a prohibition to selfishness. I'm getting ready to go down into it a little bit. Is agape, for, so, for those of you who have been taught the modern version of the Greek term agape, is agape selfish? No. All right, so stay with me, stay with me. And if agape is completely personified in Jesus, did Jesus walk selfishly? When Jesus came, did he not come giving? Did he not come manifesting light? Did he not come to help men and women come out of darkness and walk in the light of the Lord? I'm trying to help you with with the idea of understanding the nature of, of agape properly. If I'm walking in agape, then what I am doing is checking the impulse to be given to selfishness. Because selfishness can be a stone of stumbling to other people. Did that come home? All right, Romans chapter 14. I'm going to walk through this starting at verse 13. And uh, I'm hoping I can get through our latter part. This is where Paul is dealing with the whole issue of making sure we understand our liberty in a way in which our liberty is working to edification and not to harm. Here he says, let us not therefore judge one another anymore. We talked about that. But judge this, analyze this, draw this conclusion, okay? This is the idea of judging here. Analyze, critique, and draw a conclusion. It is a mathematical, it is an accounting term. Count the cost and add it up. This is what we should conclude, that no man put a what? Or an occasion to what? In whose way? Well, you will if you are living for your own glory. You and I will, if, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, do not live for yourself. Right, because if we are living for ourselves, we're going to teach others to do the same. Did that make some sense? Right. So when Paul said over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, 
uh, four, let no man seek his own, but every man another's. That is as Christocentric as you can get. Because Jesus didn't come to seek his own. He came to do his father's will. That's what he said over and over and over again. I came not to do my will, but the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Is that true? And this is the will of him that sent me, that all that the father giveth me shall come to me. In other words, Jesus came to save. And so he lived in a way of full agape. Jesus is the agape of the father. That's John 118, right? No one has seen God at any time. Only he who is in the bosom, the heart, the essence, the agape of God, he hath revealed him to us. Making sense, has it? All right, so Jesus is our model for an agape life, which means his life is one of cutting the lights on. And when he cuts the lights on, doesn't he have the right to say, follow me? If he's cutting the lights on, shouldn't we follow him? Yeah, you you follow anyone that's cutting the lights on. Because this world is darkness. Right. And so Jesus becomes the good shepherd that we follow. Right. That's the language here. I love this because I'm kind of drilling down into Romans 14, the ethic. Go back to Romans 14, 13 through. um, It's going to be 13 through 17. Then we'll get to point number three briefly and then we'll do Q&A. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I want you to uh, be thinking about this so when we get to, to Q&A, what kind of thinking must I have to make sure that I'm operating out of this ethic consistently? I just want you to think about that. What kind of frame of mind, how, what kind of mechanism for determining how I engage life when I prioritize making sure that I am not the cause of my brother stumbling. Y'all got that? I want you to think it through because I want to have the conversation around that. Because look, if I'm not thinking about how to make sure that my brother or sister is safe in their journey, then I may inadvertently be engaging in causing them to stumble. All right, Uh, verse 14, here it is. I love this, watch this. Now watch what Paul says. I want y'all to get this. This is going to get back to liberty and discretion. I know, this is what Paul said, and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus. Is that good or what? Right, it gives you insight into the depth of intimacy and communion that Paul had with Christ. It's a direct relationship. Now, everybody can't say that, but we should be aiming toward that. We should be aiming towards obtaining a persuasion. That word persuasion is really the modified version of a deep faith, okay? I know and am fully committed to fully entrusting as a consequence of my relationship with Christ that there is nothing unclean of itself. All right, so I want you to really slow it down here because we're, we're now still engaging in the table. The table of the Lord is clean. The table of devils is unclean. The Apostle Paul now is introducing to you and me the challenge in this world of being able to determine and decipher clean and unclean when and when not. Okay, that's what he's doing here. This is a profound statement here I know and am persuaded that there is nothing unclean, what? Of itself. Stay there because he's building a theology. 
and I'm getting ready to help you with it. He says there's nothing of itself that is to be viewed as unclean. Now notice what he goes on to say. But to the one that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Y'all keeping up with me? Watch this. This has to do with two kinds of minds, two kinds of understandings, two kinds of perspectives, two kinds of liberties. One struggles with identifying those things that are fully approved of God. The other is clear from his maturity and experience, the broad scope of what's acceptable to God and is able to freely enjoy that which is acceptable to God. Did that make sense? No, I didn't. All right, so I'm going to do it again. I'm going to start all over again. Help some of y'all. Because this is about two people, you and the other person. Then you can extrapolate that to 10, 20, or 30. One person is mature enough to know that he can eat all things. This was Paul's previous argument in verse 1, 2, and 3. Another person is struggling with eating anything. They write in the same text. Now, these are two Christians. They read the same Bible. They trust the same Jesus. One is thin. The other one is fat. I'm speaking metaphorically. <laughs> this is a metaphor, okay? All right, so don't get mad at me. Uh, but now what Paul is saying is just because you're free to eat everything. Remember, we're back in 1 Corinthians 10. All things are lawful to me, but not everything is necessary. And not necessarily is it edifying. Whoa. In other words, every time I go down the aisle, I don't have to just grab something off the shelf. Metaphorically speaking. It, it, everything is not expedient. I need to get it while I can. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, no, you don't. And I want to back up and talk about that at the psycho spiritual level. Can we do that? What's going on with a man or a woman who is thinking Upon every occasion, they got to grasp after and get and hoard. They are failing to remember that the table is sufficient and never, ever wanting of anything. Am I making some sense? They're failing to understand Psalm 23, 1, that the Lord is constantly replenishing the table. He or she does not have to grasp after the synthetic food of the false Safeway system. Am I making some sense? This is really important. But they are free to it. They're free, but they're not bound and compelled by maybe an inordinate affection. Makes sense, right? And so notice what he says. There is nothing unclean of itself. There's, this is the person who has a broad sense of freedom, but to him that esteems anything to be unclean, to him it what? Is now this is important because if a man or woman is walking in the limitations of their own scruples, to whatever degree they are negotiating with God and with God's word about what they can and cannot do, what they can and cannot receive. Are you with me so far? I'm going to say this again because I want to make a point here. This is going to be the point about the idea of um, discretion 
and the know-how to engage in the table that the Lord sets up without being a stumbling block. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how to walk in love and not become a stumbling block to others because the table is done in community. Right? The table is not done in a vacuum. It's not done in a cave. This is not a cult. We do this openly and publicly before the world. We are in the world, not of it. But because we're in the world, we are showing the world properly how we participate in communion in Christ in a way that doesn't cause them to stumble. All right, very important. All right, here it is. So, but to him that esteems anything to be unclean, to him it is what? Unclean. You know what that means? You cannot tell somebody something is clean when they are persuaded that it's not. Get ready to help you. You are not their Lord. Does that make sense? Now, so you know, we're, we're going right back to a study we had a while back in, in, in the book of Corinthians, right? When we were dealing with, in fact, it was in Romans. We we're dealing with the idea that you and I don't, that was Romans 14, by the way. You and I don't have the right to penetrate into people's minds and make them uncomfortably committed to our liberties. That is not walking in love. Am I making some sense? Right. Not only is it not walking in love, it's actually rebellion against Christ. Because it's asserting his position in their life. Is that true? All right. And, and that becomes a real challenge here. This is where I'm going to be working with you for a minute. Um, I, I want to come back to verse 14, but go back to verse 8. Let's see if we'll start at verse 8. 14, 8. I want to walk this through just a bit with you because I want us to talk about it because Christians are sloppy on a lot of levels. They're sloppy in their own life and then they like to be sloppy in other people's lives. And that's not cool. For whether we live, we live unto who? The Lord. Ultimately to him, right? Yep. And whether we die, we die unto who? The Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the what, what a comfort. Didn't Paul tell us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4? Right. It's a small thing that you judge me. I don't even judge myself. My judgment is from him who died for me. Didn't we get liberated under that one? Right. So stay here. Look, look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. For to this end, with this purpose in view, Christ both died. For what? He rose and revived that he might be Lord both of the what? Dead. And the what? Right. So if he's Lord over our lives... He's Lord over our lives individually first and then collectively second. Would you agree with that? Very important. Individually first and then collectively second. Verse 10. Watch this. But why are you judging your brother and why do you set and not your brother? For we shall all stand before the what? Judgment seat of Christ. Well, and and he's using a specific Greek grammar. We shall all individually stand before him. He individually stood for us before God. Us and him and him and us. He individually died for my sin before God per capita. This ain't no HMO thing. Look, this ain't no group insurance policy. Everybody got an individual policy. Does that make sense? Right. And so the one who died for us, I answer to him individually. You don't answer to him for me. I answer to him. And when I have a healthy understanding of the prominent exclusive accountability that I have before Christ, then I am also obligated to make sure no one else 
has domain over my conscience but the Lord. Did that come home? All right, so here it is. Verse 11, because I want to walk up to verse 14. For it is written, as I live, said the Lord, every knee shall bow to every individual knee. Every individual person shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. Verse 12. So then every one of us shall give an account to each other of himself to God. So the individuation principle here is critical in segregating our personas in a way to make sure that our personas don't bleed over into each other in a way in which we have this kind of uh, uh, non-definitive group think going on where we would have access to each other without the necessary boundaries that allow us to be able to go, hey, you don't have access here unless I let you. You don't have access to my conscience in that way unless I let you. Why? Because you didn't die for me. You didn't rise again. You don't stand before God as my mediator. You're not the epitome of wisdom and understanding. You don't have all power. You can't save me or condemn me. Did that make some sense? All right. So what I'm doing right there is showing you how safe and secure you are, individual believer in Christ, when you comprehend that exclusivity. Now, you and I can help each other. That should go without saying. But you and I don't have right of lordship over each other to the exclusion of Christ. That makes sense, right? Very important to capture because I must tell you when we're not careful, we are bumping into each other in ways and intruding in each other's lives in ways in which we can call stumbling. All right, here it is. So then every one of us shall give an account. Let us therefore judge one another. Let us therefore judge one another. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge rather this, that no man puts a stumbling block on occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now we got a context, don't we? Oh, I must be careful that I don't bruise my brother's conscience by my conduct. Now, verse 14, I want to walk this through. Got a little ways to go. So we already said, I know and I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself. Did Jesus teach that? Matthew 15. It's not what goes inside a man, man's belly that defiles him. It was, it's what comes up out of his heart. For out of the heart that all manner of evil proceed. It's not whether or not you, 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 you eat, you know, garlic and cucumbers or whatever. No, all of those distinguishing factors are privileges that we have individually. But it's not what goes in that consumes you. And this, this is going to be so critical, too. We're going to touch on it a bit on Sunday. This is how you avoid legalism at the ascetic level. I'm holy because I don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other thing. I'm holy because I eat this, but I don't eat that. Oh, no, 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 I never touch. No, I ain't never had. That's what Peter said the night on the roof of the tanner when the father gave him the vision and all kinds of food was in the sheep. Rise, Peter, slay and eat. Peter said, Lord, no, I ain't never done that in my life. He was presenting to the Lord his own works religion. He was a kosher Jew limiting his eating to certain particular things. And he thought by doing it that he was righteous. When God had bust open wide 
the gate of freedom, all things are clean. That which I have cleaned, Peter, call not thou unclean. Y'all caught that? So, so really what we're talking about in the metaphor is really freedom expanded for the Christian in Christ. Did that make some sense? Freedom expanded for the Christian in Christ. And yet that freedom expanded cannot be neglected by selfishness. I can't be selfish with it. A few more, a few more minutes. So verse 15, this is what it says. I want to get to verse 17. But if your brother be grieved with your what? If your brother is offended by your liberty to eat meat, when he has resolved, you know, I'm a vegetarian, I'm a vegetarian. You know, we got vegetarian brethren here. But they, they operate on a sliding scale too. I, I didn't watch them. They're not completely gospel vegetarians. I'm just, I'm just, I'm going to help you now. I didn't watch them. They vegetarians of a convenient course, Okay. So, 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 you know, if you watch them carefully, God, no, that's meat. You know, then you got some who are really trying to be vegetarians, but they're just not holy enough to do it, right? They're trying to be vegetarian, but they're just not holy enough to do it. And this is what happens with works religion. Works religion, you always come up short, then you got to bend the rules, bend the rules, so you can fit up under there. I'm still holy. No, you're not. No, no, you've been in the room. Now you can, <laughs> you can bid them for yourself. Don't force me to come under that thing. I want my freedom, okay? Because yeah. it don't even look like it's fun. Them trying to be ascetic and self-righteous and, and, and laboring, right? They look like they're about to die trying to be holy. Okay, okay, okay. But if your brother be grieved with your meat, now you are not walking in agapetos. Destroy not him with your meat for whom Christ what? It's radical, isn't it? That again is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Got a little more time. I want to go there briefly, then we're going to come back. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I just want you to see it, because Paul is treating that subject in a lot of ways. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting at verse 10. For if any man see... Thee, you, which have knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's table. There it is. See it? Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to what? Do y'all see that? Your freedom forced your brother to violate his own boundaries and come over and eat at the table of of idols. Did that make sense? We're getting ready to come back and deal with it on the sticky level. But look at it. For if any man see you which have knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? Verse 11. And through your knowledge shall the weak brother what? For whom Christ died. Now he doesn't perish eternally. He perishes in his resolve to have been committed to Christ around the parameters with which he was persuaded that he should not engage in. Because that particular persuasion is more important in his walk with Christ than you're influencing him to overcome his persuasion and join you. Did that make some sense? Because our walk with Christ on a personal level is so exceedingly important, I shouldn't be tempting you to abandon your limited parameters 
which are comfortable for you for all sorts of reasons to come over here and become uncomfortable and engage with me at a table that in your conscience is really unclean. That makes sense, doesn't it? Now you know if Romans 14, verse 14 is correct, I'm causing you to sin. Am I making some sense? I'm causing you to sin. Notice, uh, but to him that esteems anything unclean, to him it's unclean. Let me walk this through because Paul is doing something beautiful. Verse 16, Romans 14, 16. Let not your good be evil spoken of. See it? We can, we can talk about it in the Q&A in a few moments. Verse 17. <clears throat> For the kingdom of God is actually not about meat and drink. See it? Although that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the scruples of the conscience around things that are dedicated to, in this world dimension, devils and God. And the believer cannot have fellowship at the ta table with devils. Although he has discretion around the same resources that the devil has. Did that make some sense? Get ready to talk about that. One of my Jewish sisters, we had this conversation on Sunday here at Grace. Notice what he says. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now watch how Paul treats this. Verse 18. For he that in these things serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. You see, verse 17 and 18 is radically Christocentric. Would you agree? Why do I say that? Because in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. He was ascetic. Remember, wild honey and locusts. That brother was a true vegetarian. In the same verse... But the Son of Man came both eating and drinking, which gives you the paradoxical characteristics of the ascetic ministry of John and the free ministry of Christ. So when our master came, he ate and drank with publicans and tax collectors, all kinds of foods, because to him it was what? Clean. Did that make some sense? Because he was walking in his what? Liberty. On the grounds of what? Love. Am I making some sense? Yes. Right, so it's important for you to get this because you and I have to negotiate this. And so when Paul says here, no, the kingdom of God is really the principle of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> the man that serves God in these things shall be approved of God, uh, accepted of God, accepted to God, and what of men? Approved. All right, so this is beautiful here. I didn't want to go this long, but it's important for you to get. If you and I do the gospel right, we open the door for our table to be seen of men in a way in which it becomes attractive. Did that come home? If we do the gospel right, approved of men, that quality actually indicates that that person is overcome by the Spirit of God in his fundamental enmity against God. Meaning, if we do the gospel appropriately, it has an evangelical benefit of drawing men. Why? Because they see liberty, which they could never have seen, and a table that's clean, which they could never partake of. I hope that comes home. It's very important to get this. This is really about wise evangelism. 
This is about an evangelism that's effectual. Remember the tables of witness. All right, just to nail it down, just in case you're not getting it. On Sunday, there will be all kinds of people in here who are not saved. They aren't even saying that they're saved. They came to church because people did the right things, invited them, which is what we're supposed to do. So our worship is public, but our partaking of the table is personal. And when they see us go through that visual optic of the bread and the cup, if our gospel message was right, and if our conduct was right, it should draw them to the table. It should draw them to the table. Did that make some sense? But in a way that does not approve of uncleanness. All right, it'll come home, it'll come home. Now watch how Paul finishes out this chapter, verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and the things wherewith one may do what? Edify another. All right. See, that has to be the hierarchy of our walk. I, I told you this before. I'll just put it out there. There's some folks that don't know how to live without being caught up in all kind of drama. I'm just going to put it out there. There's, People don't even think that they have a pulse unless they're arguing with somebody. Did that come home? Now, I know that ain't nobody in the house. I know that. But they don't feel like, you know, ain't nothing going on unless I'm arguing with somebody. I'm debating with somebody. I'm in conflict with somebody. I'm in tension with somebody. No. Wise men operate in peace. Wise women pursue peace. And holiness with all men, without which you will never see the Lord. See what I'm getting at? So now watch what Paul does here. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and the things wherewith we may edify one another. That is a profound uh, ethic proceeding from love. Verse 20. I I love what he's about to do here. For meat destroys not the work of God. Do you see it? So now what he's doing in a brief quip, he's saying to the non-meat eaters, okay, look. The brothers that like ribs and, 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 you know, pork chops, leave them alone. It doesn't impact the gospel. So I love the way Paul works because that's what I try to do. I try to be an equal opportunity reprover at Grace. I'm going to get the men someday, the women other days. I'm going to get the young people some days, old people. I'm going to get black folks and then I'm going to get white folks. That's how I do. Because that's the way we should do it. Everybody should sense the discipline of the Lord swinging hither and yon and getting all of us in its season. All whom the Lord loves, he what? That's right. So you don't get to get away. You just don't get to get away. So this is here in this, he already admonished the meat eaters, hey, don't cause your brothers that don't eat meat to stumble. Now he's saying, hey, you, you, you bean eaters, you, you, you shrub eaters for Jesus. You shrub eaters for Jesus. Listen, please understand these brothers can eat as much cow as they want to. It's not going to impact the kingdom issue. So, I mean, don't go out protesting against farms. Okay. (laughs) All things indeed are what? It's going back to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. To the pure, all things are pure. All things are mine. This, that's your... That's, that's the point under point number two and three. To, and, and, and really point number three. Look at point number three, the title. Just hurry up and get done. Delight in the freedom of what? Grace. Yes. Is that what I'm compelling you to do? Yes. 
but I'm doing it in the rigor of us understanding discernment and discretion. Right, right, because I don't get to just delight in a sloppy, lazy, offensive way. I don't get to cast a stumbling block upon you. Can I share with you four verses by which you can understand that stumbling block as a problem more vividly? And then we're going to go down. In In the Greek grammar, that word is seen over in Matthew's gospel, chapter four, verse six. This is Jesus in the wilderness. I want you to listen to the language. I'm going to show you where the term apolauso is used and it's translated stumbling block. This is the devil. And he said unto him, this is the devil talking to Christ. If you be the son of God, cast yourself down. Where was he at? On the pinnacle of the temple, right? For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and... In their hands shall they bear you up, lest at any time you shall what? Dash your foot against the stone. Right. So what he's saying to what he what he's saying to Christ is, is that if you're the son of God, prove that the angels will rescue you so that you don't stumble. Dash your foot against the stone is the same word for stumbling. It is also translated literally this way. I love this. It's also translated so that you do not strike a stone with your foot. Because that really is what's happening when you stumble, you are striking the stone. You got that? You are, it's the idea of the stone in your foot coming into conflict. Coming into conflict. Old people know that now, don't we? We don't like stumbling. Come on, old people, tell the truth. It's as if we're fighting with the stone. And we always lose. Come on. And we always lose, don't we? I don't want to fall. I don't want to stumble because I'm fighting with the stone and then you lose. The emphasis that I'm making here is this. Stumbling is really a conflict metaphor. It's a fight. When you cause someone to stumble, you are fighting with them. You are striking them. Did that come on? You're striking their conscience. You're wounding their conscience. That's the metaphor that we want to, to take away from. That's what, that's what Jesus is teaching. Um, one more verse, just one more verse. I like this, Matthew 7, 27. You'll see the metaphor again. The language is going to be described here. Jesus is talking about the house uh, built on sand and the house built on stone. Go back to verse 20, uh, 25. Uh, I'll walk it through, yeah. He said, uh, verse 24 then, because you will need it. Verse 24. Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a what? Right, verse 25. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat. That word beat there is stumbling block or strike. Strike, strike. It strikes upon that house, and it does what? Right. So now when I put a stumbling block in front of my brother, I'm going to cause him to what? Fall. Right. Because I'm striking him in the same way the rain is coming down and striking the house. If I'm walking carnally and I don't care about him or her, I'm striking her to make them fall. I wanted you to feel that term because stumbling block is often a very vague concept. But may I say one more thing about it? And then we'll go back to our text and close. Uh, Go back to Romans 14. I want to read out that last verse. May I say one more thing about it? Stumbling block 
is a principle preserved by God for God against his enemies. And this is where, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense that God casts before men who reject the gospel. Did that make some sense? He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense that God casts before men who reject the gospel. Right. This is why Jesus says, if you don't bow to me, I'm going to crush you. If you do, I'm just going to humble you. Right. And so the idea of the stumbling stone for you and me that God would tell us to avoid is the idea of us avoiding being like God, the only right judge. Did that make some sense? God has a right to judge men. I don't have a right to judgment. I don't want to live in a way in which I judge you and cause you to fall. That's going to be up to God. That makes sense. The whole house of Israel is taken in the snare of the, the stumbling stone because they rejected Christ. And so it's important for you and I to understand how problematic that. For me, destroys not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with what? There it is. Your liberty. Now is evil if you do not walk in what? Love. Do you see it? One more verse. Here's the wrestling verse. This one should liberate, liberate people who are, who are struggling. It is neither, it is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is what? Right, again, your freedom is no good if it becomes a stumbling stone to offend your brother. Now here is the final verse. I love what Paul does. He's got two more verses, verse 22 and 23. Do you have faith? Great question. Because this is really about personal faith at the operational level around the environment in which we live. Do you have faith? Then have it to yourself, where? Before God. That's the priority of your faith. Do you have faith? Make sure that it's between you and God first. Because when it is between you and God first, then you can keep the priority of why you do, the motive for which you do things correct in relationship to other people who will see your faith. Now notice what he says. Happy is the one that does not condemn himself in the thing which he what? You guys see that framing? Oh, raise your hand if you want some help with it. All right, you should want help. Yeah, because what verse 22 is teaching is that when you are walking right with God and you are prioritizing him, you and him get to set the parameters of your freedom. You and him get to set the parameters of your freedom in the context of what you can know you are free to partake of. Is this important, what I'm saying to you? So don't rush, don't rush past what I'm getting ready to say. Because I'm actually going back to the beginning of our study, am I not? In the beginning of our study, what I was saying was the believer's conscious domain must not be penetrated by any other believer as if that other believer is the Lord. But in order to make sure that doesn't happen, you have to prioritize your faith in God in such a way that when other believers have a scruple about what you're doing, you have to permit them to have that. Otherwise, they don't have it. Otherwise, they can have it on their own, but you don't care 
because you have resolved between you and the Lord as to what constitutes your freedom of access and participation. Did that come home? Now, you've already qualified your freedom and domain of right of, of particular choices on this ethic. I'm not going to engage in my freedom in a way that's going to cause my brother to stumble. Therefore, my freedoms are securely mine in Christ and you can't take them away, nor can you charge me with engaging in my freedom in an evil way. I hope that comes home, right? Because now all you're doing is making sure that you are walking in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free and you are doing it in the context of love so that if someone accuses you of something in the context of your liberty, they don't have a right of impugning you because you got your order right. Amen. That makes sense, right? That makes sense. Very good. Then here's how... So. Do you have faith? Have it before yourself with God. That means figure that thing out. Figure it out. Because this is where Christians struggle too. Do we not? Well, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do this? Can I do I get it. You know, I get it all the time as a pastor. And sometimes I just say, read your Bible. Oh, pastor, just give me, read your Bible. Let the Holy Ghost tell you, right? And I love this because I'll talk about this on Sunday. Philippians 3 says... Where unto you and I, where you and I have already attained, this is talking about how you walk with God. When you're walking with God, there is a level of attainment we all have. And of course, we got millions of miles to go. But to the degree we have attained that, you and God are good. Yeah. Don't let anybody take away that good. Because that's your walk with God. If God has gotten you down the road, you know, three, four, five miles, you and him are happy. Okay, maybe you got 10 more to go to get into the kingdom, but who's going to go with you in that wall? God is. Right, so you don't let anyone take you back where he has walked you up this far. And here's also what Philippians is saying. Philippians is going to say it around chapter 3, around verse uh, 18 or 19. He said, if you and I be contrary to what God wants us to do, he will let us know. In fact, that is in your outline. Philippians 3, 15 through 17. Mm -hmm. Philippians 3, 15 through 17. Look at this. This is going to help you now because now you're not off the hook. Our study is really about you and I understanding that the most important aspect of this conversation around faith is making sure that you don't let someone define the parameters of your freedom and have access into that domain yes. as if they're Lord. That's one. And don't you abuse your freedom in a way of causing other people to stumble. That's two. That makes sense, right? Okay, good. Notice what he says. Let us therefore as many as be mature. That word is mature. Be thus minded. And if, any, if anything be otherwise minded, and if anything you be otherwise minded, guess what? God shall reveal even this unto you. Did that come home? How did I put that in the outline? Because I went to point number three. Yeah, three subpoints under point number three. I'm opening the floor now. Delight in the freedom of grace. In my outline, I have subpoint A, separating the food from the guests and the what? Their motive. Subpoint B, unless informed that demonic devotion is what? Affirmed. Subpoint C, providence will guide your decision as to how to respond. Mm -hmm. Does that make some sense? 
Yeah, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You're going to see it as I walk it through. Then we'll talk for a few minutes. I'm at 1 Corinthians 10. I listen to the simple language of the apostle. I love this. Here's what he says. I'm at verse 25. Whatsoever is sold in the marketplace. That's a shambles, okay? Eat. Did y'all get that? That means you're free, but it's with all the qualifiers we talked about already. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, what? Eat. Asking no question. For what? Right, right. So now notice what Paul is saying. Don't go to the marketplace engaging in yay and nay. I can eat, but maybe I can't eat. Let me see where this meat came from. Let me see, did they offer this meat up to idols? Let me see if devils were behind this. You will starve to death if you go to the market, always trying to find out whether it's kosher or halal. Did that make some sense? You see the liberty that he's giving you. Go get it, go home, eat it. Thank God for it. Does that make some sense? Really important. Very practical. He says, asking no question for conscience sake. Now watch verse 26. I love this. For the earth is the Lord. Now Paul is a Pentecostal brother enjoying his liberty in Christ, eating hamburgers. And he's a Jew. For the earth is the Lord's. The earth is not for demons. It's not for devils. It's not for cults. It's not for wicked men and, and, and wicked women. It's not for hell-bound institutions. The earth is the Lord's. Now, if I'm the Lord's and the earth is the Lord's, is not the earth mine? Do you see the freedom? That's what Paul is teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Everything is to be received with thanksgiving and prayer. For nothing is unclean of itself when we recognize the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, okay, go back, please. It's important for you to get that. Verse 27, this is what he says. Now, if any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and you be disposed to go. Now, this is different than the market. Y'all got that? This is going over to somebody's house and as you go up the door, you see warlocks and goblins all on the front door. You see dragons and vampires. You see garlic and all that. You see spider webs and you, you see the walking dead as you head into the living room. Now, if you didn't get all those signals, I don't know what to do with you. <laughs> you be disposed to go. Whatsoever is set before you, eat asking no question for what? So once again, here's somebody's, and I'm going to show you this is so important. Once again, somebody's calling you over. Why are you being called over there? To be fastidiously critiquing every little thing about their house? Or is this an opportunity in the context of the gospel for you to walk in your freedom to share with them a meal that might open the door for you to preach Christ? See what he's doing? Now watch this. Ask no question for conscience' sake. Watch this, verse 28. This is important. But if any man say to you, hey man, this food we getting ready to eat, man, we, we didn't already offer this up to Satan. 
Oh, <laughs> we got to park it now. Oh, oh. Now, see, why'd you say that, dude? Because that roast beef was spanking. But if any man say to you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it and for conscious sake. Do you see it? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So you're backing up because he was audacious enough to let you know that this meal we're about to share is to the devil. And you're saying, no, 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 no. This is the Lord's food. You are inappropriately attributing it to the devil and I'm not partaking in that table. Now I'm free to eat the food. That's why in the outline I said, separate the food from the person and the what? Motive. Once the motive is revealed, now you've got to walk in the light of the gospel. Did that make some sense? Right. But if you come in folks' house and everything they set out, you say, now where'd you get that from? <laughs> now how'd you cook that? Did you cook that in Jesus' name? Right. So you ain't going to be nobody food. Right. <laughs> One more verse. I'm done. I'm sorry. Verse 29. I think it is. Maybe that. Conscious, I say, not your own. Why? You're free. All things are clean with you. Did that make some sense? I was trying to rationalize. I'm trying to go, okay, so I ain't going to eat what you do because you offered that up to, to devils. But I'm going to take a piece of it and I'm leaving. <laughs> and as, as I'm going, on, Lord, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. Bless this food in Jesus' name because I'm free. I'm free. I know nothing is unclean of itself. I'm not eating with him. I'm not condemning the food. This is how Christians keep from dying all over the planet from the beginning of time till now. Did that make some sense, brother? Right. Did that make some sense? He's letting the Christian lets that man know, I do not worship devils, but I'm not condemning that food. You see that? All right, let's have a conversation. Let's, let's walk it for a few minutes so we can get out of here. Anybody struggling with anything? Raise your hand. We'll walk it through. Ten minutes and we're out. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Let's, let's, raise your hand. There you go. Anybody on this side struggling with? I got a question. Go ahead on. Since you got the mic, Katrina, go ahead on. Um, so 1 Corinthians, the one with 24. You got to put the mic to your mouth. Mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Mm -hmm. Even though you gave a lot of analogies, I don't know, my reading comprehension and, and your examples just are not colliding mentally. Mm -hmm. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 24 briefly again. Because the, the second part, the, but every, every man another's wealth. Right. Take the, take like the word a, wealth out. Oh, okay. It's not, it's, whenever you see brackets in your Bible, that means the italicis is an inscription by the translators. It's okay. trying to help you, but what he's saying is, let no man seek his own. That is, you yeah, and that I. Yeah, that part I get and right. I understand, but the other but part. Every but every man another's. But every man another's. Let another's every, what, though? Another's good, another's well-being. So this is, again, oh, okay. in the Greek, I told you, I used the term ellipses. I told you what an ellipsis is. An ellipsis is the absence of a term 
in the language that's inferred and you have to fill in the blank. But this would be as simple as do unto others as you would do unto yourself. Okay. Right? That's exactly what that would mean. So let no man seek his own, but every man another's. And this is a constant ethic in the gospel for people of God. That's Philippians chapter two, verse four, by the way, because that's what Christ did, is it not? That's what Christ did. Um, pull that up and then we'll move on. Here it is. Let not, look not every man to his own thing, but every man also on the what? Is that a corresponding verse? Did that help, Katrina? Yes. Okay, good. Excellent. Is that, is that it to your question? All right. Over here, you got the mic, sis? Okay, uh, we can start with Elise and then go back to Ivana. Oh, you got to get the mic because there's all kind of people got to hear. Okay, I just want to add something real quick. It helps me to read the New International Version and compare it with the King's James Version because of the ye, thou, like it's sometimes hard to understand. Mm-hmm. And so when you pull those up, um, I quickly go to my International Version and it's like more clear for me to understand what the verse is saying in the King Version. Mm-hmm. Um Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, I don't know it can if that be it, it can be helpful. Sometimes it can, and sometimes it's not. Certainly, with the antiquated language forms, thither thou's, hitherto's, prevents, we can clean that up, and it should be. So, like your New King James Bible is much more contemporary in that way. The English Standard Version is as well. The New International Version is absolutely fine largely in the New Testament. That's why I don't say anything about it. So I see what you're saying. Yes, you can do that. You, you, we have what are called New Testament parallel Bibles too. So you got many different translations you can look at if a verse in any one translation is a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to start your analysis. So that's great. So that, that could have helped. Because often what you'll get with me when I explain a verse you'll find that that verse explained is often already laid out in that kind of explanation in other translations. Lisa. Okay. Um, I kind of get mixed up why the devil would think he could actually go to God's son and think that he could make him like jump off the mountain or, mm-hmm. you know, do the stuff to make him be reverent to the devil. So if I'm thinking this right, he came down as man form. So the devil has no, um, like, reverence for him because the devil doesn't mess with God. I mean, he can't mess with God. So now he's messing with Jesus because Jesus came as a man so that he could save us all. So that's why the devil thinks he can mess with Jesus. Okay, I can can work with that. That is partially true. That's, that's, That's partially true. First and foremost, it is true that the devil sees God as God more vividly than any human being sees God as God. That's one truth, meaning that the devil is not at all blinded in his perception and awareness of God. There is no no veil between him and God at that level. He is not not seeing God when he sees Jesus. He is seeing God. Okay, so it's important for you to know. Um, There's no doubt about it. I mean, anytime Jesus says, get out of here, he goes. 
That's all through your Bible, Old Testament and New. Devil, I rebuke you, right? But what our sister is saying is that Jesus assumed a human nature, so he took on the capacity for being tempted. And understand that temptation is personified in the devil. The devil is called the tempter. So as a pathology, he is just giving to tempting, and that has no kind of rational or sort of uh, immoral or moral premise. He is the tempter. He does that because that's his nature. He tests every human being. He tested Job, right? So we, we have a whole theology around the enemy being called the tempter. Y'all got that? Right, so Jesus is the quintessential Adam. Well, here comes the what? Tempter, tempting the last Adam. She's right there. She's right there. Secondly, in that he is going to tempt humanity, he wants humanity to fall because he's fallen. So he's in a state of condemnation, irreparably. He does not reason through the possibility of salvation for himself. So everything he does is to bring down God's kingdom to the condemnation that he is in. So here comes Jesus and the devil knows better than anyone that Jesus has a test from the time of conception until the time he says it is finished. And the devil has the right by God to test him. He was legitimately tested in all points like unto us without sin. That's what makes him our savior. Because whereas if the devil just comes and go boo to you and I, we fall over. Yeah. Ah! Right? If it wasn't for Jesus, you and I would be fit to be tied. So what we get to see is how Jesus said no to him all the way, even unto death. And because Jesus obeyed, you and I live. So when you see the test, because what our sister is inquiring of, what is the thinking of the devil? The devil is operating out of a permanent, irreparable condemnation. It is reprobation at the level of never, ever being redeemable. So, so you're wasting your emotions when you're thinking, you know, Lord, how come you don't save the devil? There's just some things that are not getting saved. Okay, and so that is one of them. There's a reason why we can't go into it now, but to whom much is given, much is what? Right, so his, there will be no salvation for him or the fallen devils. So they live in the condemnation of tearing down. By the way, there are human beings that operate in that same sphere. They are irreparably given to perdition. And so they act it out very much like the devil does. And they're proud of it. So you, you, you definitely need to know that. So with the enemy, this is what you have to be careful about in this world, too. There are times when the enemy works and you and I will try to rationalize it. Don't fall prey for it. Because there's some things that just have no rational basis behind it. It's just perdition, pathology. It's, he's given to it, right? He is condemned. So he must do it. All right, so I'll leave that alone. Um, can I just, so... I, I see the difference because before I was saved, like what's happening with all this transgender stuff, I see that I was very uh, propagandized and thought that kids could be born in... A girl in a boy's body. Right. right. And uh, 
I, I look back on that and I just go, wow. And so, I mean, now I had a, I had a reprobate mind, and now like just recently, like I and I also thought that people were born gay. And I've been, you know, thanks to the teaching. I would reframe the reprobation. I've taught this okay. for a long time. You are blinded, you were ignorant, and you were sold under sin, as, were, as was I. But you weren't reprobate in that sense. So let me see if I can explain that briefly. And, and I'll probably wait till Sunday. Because I talked to you guys about presumptuous sin on last Sunday, did I not? Yes. I'm picking that back up this week. Because presumptuous sin is a danger. Every, every human being that goes to heaven, you go to heaven because of what Christ did for you. You don't go to heaven because you're better than people that didn't go to heaven. All right. But you were chosen in Christ before the world began. You born, you're born and raised a sinner until God calls you by his grace. Did that make some sense? So in your Adamic situation, you and I think like sinners, we act like sinners, we behave like sinners until we're born again. That makes sense, right? There are certain sins that those who are chosen in Christ can never commit. And this is important. For, for the devil, he's a permanent reprobate. His sin exceeds the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, okay? Okay. And that was the one sin that we were told by Christ. You commit that sin, there's no forgiveness there. Every elect child of God is preserved from committing that sin. You cannot commit that sin. Did that make some sense? You can't commit that sin in your unsaved state. You can't commit that sin in your saved state. That's a dimension of sinning that you were protected from because you were chosen unto salvation. So God kept you from the severe, demonic, devilish sin that would disqualify you from the merits of Christ's atonement. It's called ignorance. Did you hear what I just stated? It's called ignorance. Ignorance is what you and I are outside of Christ, walking in darkness, doing the things that we know not, because we are blinded and lost. When we are saved, the ignorance is removed and we walk in the light. Am I helping you? Yes. This is why Paul, who was engaged as Saul in hideous criminal behavior against the saints. First Timothy chapter 1 15 says, of whom I am chief, but God have mercy on me because I did it in ignorance. Did that make some sense? As heinous as Paul's behavior was, he was protected by ignorance because God had prepared him for salvation. And that's true of you and me as well. This ought to make your heart rejoice. This ought to make your heart rejoice because we can sin broadly as the people of God. David will tell you. We can sin broadly. Solomon will tell you. We can sin broadly. Jonah will tell you. Peter will tell you, but we can't sin beyond the limits of ignorance. This is why your master hanging on the cross in the fourth of the seven statements that he stated. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Did that come home? 
This is a beautiful insight into how God limits you and me from our sinful behavior, which has always left us in the hope of the gospel until he said this. I'm going to just put this out to those of you who got knucklehead kids that are out there clowning and are in lots of trouble. You pray for them on that principle that what they're doing, they're doing in ignorance and in unbelief. Did that make some sense? In ignorance and in unbelief, because that is forgivable. All right. So reprobation is when God gives you up permanently to never returning. Okay. And he didn't do that to you. I mean, you were bad, girl. You were really bad. Who got the mic? Who got the mic? We got a few more. We out. (laughs) Jackie. Go ahead on, Jackie. We only got one or two more. I got to get out of it. Mike, I have a, like a two part question and maybe you can help me with it. But my statement is, um, Are we all, well, the question is, are we always at the table? Because we're always, um, like, determining, um, having discernment and discretion and delight. And when we um, encounter somebody that doesn't eat meat, and as in Romans 14, they said... um, we're not to judge them or say that it's bad or whatever, because even though God created the food himself, but we are still in that I got that we're sinners, that we're a sinner too, that I'm a sinner, and I can't, I don't know where he is as far as following Christ. Is that kind of like? Yeah, it's a little convoluted, but I'll see if I can help you right quick. So at the table of our fellowship with Christ, we got Christians. Have you ever met those uh, Christians that eat like birds? My sister said birds eat a lot, but they go like this. Have you ever seen that? Right. So that's what Paul is saying. They're very fastidious, very careful. That's a human trait. Have you ever seen human beings that just take take the food and go... Well, that's how some Christians are, too. OK, so you got both of them at the table. OK, and and we're supposed to learn how to get along. OK, they're both at the table. They're both at the table. Some are eating meat. Some are eating vegetables. They're both at the table. Did that make some sense? They're both at the table. I, I want that because all we're dealing with is the metaphor of feeding. We got a lot of other stuff we're doing as Christians, but when it's time to eat, we're both at the table. Some are eating very selectively, others broadly and more freely. And we can't be judging each other because of the way we engage in our diet at the same table. I got a feeling some of us gorgers need to kind of every now and then just just eat like the little bird food. To just do that for a little while and see what kind of benefits come from it, right? And they need to come over there and gorge with us a little bit and figure out what that's like. All right, we're done. One more question. Who has the mic? Sister Deb. Uh, Because I am a whip, uh, I need the thinking mechanism, whereas whereas I don't want to uh, make anyone stumble. And, And especially, I'm speaking of my daughter, whereas I don't want, when I talk to her, Whereas um, a stumbling, whereas she talks to her 
her daughter, and it's a stumbling and generation. I want the best thinking mechanism, whereas I don't want her to stumble. And I don't want, I don't know, because she's very annoying to me. But I'm just saying, it's just, I, I know she, you know, she, I don't know. She just gets at me, whereas it's, I need a better approach. I don't know. I'm not doing it right. I'm with you. I already know I'm not. Right. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. I, I, I apologize to her a lot, quite a bit. Right. I do go back. Right. And I'm like, we had an incident, and, and I'm going to go to her today. You know what I'm saying? I want to go face to face, but that's not going to happen. But I'm going to call her, and, and I'm going to tell her. But I do really want to go face to face. But I do need a thinking mechanism when I talk to her. Yeah, because you love your baby. I do. I know you do, I Mama. Do. I know I you do. do. I know I do. you do. I, I do. know you do. No doubt. Yes. But yeah. I don't want her to stumble in, right. like I said, the generation. This is, generation. This is the last one. This I is the last it. one. This is the last one. We're, is. we're out. This is la- oh, you got something, Victoria? Right. This one is a, a long practice you're going to have to engage in. Because this is about getting a hold of deep temperaments that frame how you express. Deep temperaments. How many of us in the house are problem personalities? Problem personalities. Just raise it on here. Get it. Get it on up. Get it up. Get it on up. Problem personalities. Okay. I'm just going to touch on this a bit. I'm not going to go super deep. But when we are problem personalities, it means frequently that our emotions go before our actions, and they frame the momentum of our expression in a way that hijacks our intentionality. Did that make some sense? And and a lot of this is just, again, personality quirks that have forged themselves over many, many years. So by the time that we're an adult, it's such a pathological trait that it is almost intuitive. To break it, you have to practice being counterintuitive to the impulse to simply be a natural emotive responder. You need grace to put space between how you think, how you feel, and what you say and do. You got to ask God, give me grace to put space between the way I think and the way I feel before I speak and before I act. That's going to require a long practice. Does that make some sense? You will not change. You will not change if you don't do that. If you don't practice seeking to rein in the simultaneity of an emotive expression that dominates your presentation and subdues your thinking and therefore mitigates your thinking, which might be right, but it comes out wrong. Did that make some sense? Did that make some sense? Right. <clears throat> and that, we pass that to our kids. And that's, you know, so what Deb is struggling with is her daughter simply just, it's a negative feedback. Does that make sense? But Deb ain't by herself, is she? No. Right, only, like five of y'all raise y'all hands. About 25 of y'all, there we go. Let's tell some truth so we can go to heaven. Uh, and you have to work at it. 
Right. You have to work at it and pray for Deb because she did something really good. She brought it to the body. Right. Also, she's increasing in her love for Christ, which makes her more sensible to her love to others and particularly those that God gave her the grace to bring into the world, which is her own daughter. She's also seeing the same effect between her daughter and her granddaughter. And we can mitigate that to some degree if we also ask God to help us slow down. James 1.19, okay? Um, okay, so my question was on, um, you talked on like personal convictions and conscience between uh, our relationship with God and where he's personally convicting us in certain areas. Um, and so I guess my question was on um, accountability and what that would look like. Um, because I know I'm personally convicted in certain areas about things that I should or shouldn't do. Um, and I don't know if that personal conviction means that I should um, like look for accountability in that area and treat it as if it is sin. Um, or if that's just something that I need to keep between me and the Lord? Well, you don't necessarily have to account everything as sin that we might want to do a better job in or handle uh, more appropriately or get victory over. Every, everything is not necessarily sin, but like Paul said, it's not necessarily good for me. It's not necessarily edifying. There are a lot of things that we could say, I mean, I could do it, but if it doesn't edify, then, then it's not helpful, right? But if you're talking about how might I do a better job at getting a handle on certain impulses, certain choices that seem to be right now not only predictable, but pathological, kind of addictive behavior patterns, right? Possibly. We could talk about more about that, but Here's what the text is telling you you can know, that that can be worked out between you and the Lord, first and foremost, okay? And that would be about really learning uh, systems of self-evaluation, self-reflection, uh, a, a kind of commutual interaction with the Lord where you also slow down in your processing certain things that are inclined to tempt you and ask the Lord to make you more aware of the dynamics leading to a particular kind of thought processes or attitude or, or, or sort of uh, set of assertions that are emerging in your mind that you know are not good. This is just asking the Lord to slow you down so you can start making a separation within yourself of those impulses that drive that way. So like what Deb is doing is she's externalizing and she knows externally that's not helping people. We can be doing the same thing internally. See what I'm getting at? Where no one may see what I'm doing, but I know what I'm doing and I'm really struggling with what I'm doing. I don't necessarily have to get an external accountability partner as the resolution to that and I would say before I do the accountability partner, I would want to ask the Lord to do what we saw in Philippians chapter 3, 16. The Lord will reveal to you when it is not right and he can help you process how to overcome that wrong approach to the way I'm thinking or being inclined to a certain behavior, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
And if you should go the route of asking the Lord to help you, uh, I don't want this to sound weird, but be patient with yourself. And be patient with the Lord dealing with you. The Lord can fix any of our problems in a nanosecond. Is that true? But he doesn't always. And a lot of times he doesn't because he's really seeking you and I to actually grow in our relationship with him at the level of being honest about ourselves so that we can then have that process of development and edification up out of certain behavior patterns, attitudes, and thoughts. That's a consequence of our walk with the Lord. What that will mean, I'm going to end it here. Um, You will want to be really resolved that the Lord will help me with this. Does that make some sense? Now, because what I want to be able to experience is him delivering me from certain fixed predictable patterns of thought and behavior. Now, if he comes to you and says over time, go get some help with that, then be open to that too. Does that make some sense? Um, Be very careful when you go get help. Not anyone can help you. Um, That's a bigger conversation. Uh, You know, if if you want to talk, we can. Um, All right, let me let me close in prayer. (laughs) That's a bigger conversation. This is why. I mean, your Bible, I think, is fairly good. It's a beautiful thing when we can get help. But. So many times. Human help falls short. Not out of malevolence, not because people are bad. It's not true. We don't have to blame people for not helping me. (laughs) It's my fault. I'm so bad. You can't help me. Um, But sometimes it's just that we have to keep remembering. Blessed is the man whose trust is in the Lord and not in flesh. Right? So I'm not despairing if I can't get the help from humans, even though I have the option to it. The Lord is my helper. That is really where God would want us. It does not mean that you don't go. It's just that you don't lean into human beings as the Savior. Because God will see to it intentionally that they can't go that deep into your pit. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for the saints that came out tonight. As we go our way, give us traveling mercies. Prepare us to worship you on Sunday. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. God bless you guys.